This is The Bloom Pod, and I'm Taylor Onion. And I'm Melissa Lutz. Each episode, we bring you an interview with an everyday person who is chasing big dreams. I interview the guests for the first part of the show, and then Melissa and I come together and recap some of the main points at the end. With the occasional shenanigan. We are so pumped to be back. We are bringing you a semi-new format in season three, where we'll interview three entrepreneurs followed by three guests from higher education, followed by three guests from the sports world. And we are kicking off our entrepreneur block today. And this week's guest is an entrepreneur. He is a diversity, equity, and inclusion specialist. He is a former student athlete. He is a student athlete development professional. He is all the things. And we are so excited for you to listen. Please enjoy our conversation with Daniel Fitzpatrick. And we will we will go ahead and jump right in. So I just mentioned that it's been a minute uh, <laughs> since since we've had a new guest, but I'm so excited to to get back to it, jump back into things here. Uh, this this particular conversation between the two of us has been in the wings. I feel like for a little while because I think you reached out maybe sometime last spring, uh, right around the time that that we were coming to our what I thought would be a brief hiatus, but of course has has been a little bit longer than than brief. Um, and so much has happened since then, both I think you know in the world in general for both of us individually. But but let's kind of you know hop into it. We'll kick things off, Daniel, and I'll have you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, originally um, I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, and we'll, we'll come back to that. That'll be full circle. Um, and then I was raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana, so northeast coast to the Michigan border. Um, two-parent household, two older siblings. Um, and sports has been kind of my life from the start. Um, it was my way of escape from reality, um, as I think it is for a lot of student-athletes um, dealing with whatever life circumstances um, and so got into sports, was a three-sport athlete in high school, um, ran track and field, uh, where actually was an indoor state champion, um, played football. Um, I played in a lot of championships, but never won anything outside of track and field, which was like my worst sport. So I don't, I don't know how that happened. Um, played football in high school and basketball as well. Um, and then I went to Tennessee State. So I grew up, um, went to public schools my whole life, went to a private, predominantly white Lutheran high school where uh, we have roughly 600 students. Um, and out of the 600 students, only about 50 identified as a minority. So a huge gap um, there. And so for college, I wanted the total opposite experience. So I went to historical black college, the illustrious Tennessee State University. For those of you who have experience with HBCUs, you know how serious we take our institutions. Uh, and I had the best four years of my life. Uh, I came in at the time they called it a Prop 48. We say gray shirt now or academically ineligible coming in. So my first year, I didn't even participate in athletics. I was just there working on my um, grades and being um, academically eligible, uh, mostly because um, my senior year in high school, my parents got divorced and I went through a, a pretty bad depression. Um, and so GPA dropped from like a three five in high school to like a one eight. Gosh. So really struggled, um, but found my found my footing. Um, had great people along the way who helped steer me in the right direction. Had a, a great college career. Um, was national defensive player of the year um, on the FCS level. 
um, HBCU National um, Defensive Player of the Year. Um, but I really still was trying to figure out my way um, and what I wanted to do with my life. I, football was life for me. And um, I actually had an opportunity to play pro. So I was strictly focused on football. And then I think around my junior year, um, Kristen Eden, who works at Old Dominion University now, which is interesting because our men's soccer team here at Loyola played them uh, about two weeks ago. And she sent me pictures of our team down there. And uh, our athletic trainer texted me, was like, hey, uh, I think your academic advisor said that she knows you from, I'm like, yes, that's that's my girl. Uh, <laughs> but she really, you know, the first our first introduction, she was like, hey, I really don't care um, who you're related to because I went to university where my aunt was the athletic director. I don't mm-hmm. care how good you are in football, you're going to get your work done. And I was like, who are you talking to? Um, like, do you know who I am? I'm the best athlete, you know, on campus, you know, I'm this and that. And she's like, I really don't care. Like you're going to graduate and you're going to figure out life outside of football. And that really changed my trajectory. It was really someone who saw me as more than an athlete, um, helped steer me on a path, helped me get my job at Loyola was, is always, and still, um, on my reference list, um, checking with her, um, all the time, went to her wedding when she got married and had a blast, even though I was a student athlete still. And so no one would let me drink at the wedding, even though I was of age. I'm like, come on. It's <laughs> fair. That's fair. I think um, I will probably have the same feelings as an, wow. as an academic. I really advisor. felt some kind of way. I really, <laughs> uh, But I understand it now, um, working on the other side. But um, really steered me in the right direction, got into college athletics, um, really have a passion for working with student athletes. And then probably about a year and a half ago, came up with this idea for depth chart database um, to help diversify applicant pools and get more um, people of color, um, better opportunities um, and not just better opportunities, um, but to get into positions of power where we can really um, create an effect change. I love it. I love it. Okay. So, so much to, to circle back to in the intro that, that you just mentioned. I mean, you walked us through the whole thing. So first and foremost, I would like to know, you said you were an indoor track state champion. What was the event? So we actually, at the time we had the indoor state four by 200 uh, record. Um, and so that, I don't know if that record still holds. Um, so that was the event I placed in the 55, um, which is crazy because I don't have flat out speed. But what I would do is I would go and watch uh, all the races before my races to see how, um, I don't even know, the starter, how they shot their gun. Mm. So I would count the seconds in between them saying set and shooting because I knew I didn't have like the best top end speed, but if I could get a jump, then I I felt like I had a chance. So That's risky, I feel like, because if you- My coach coach hated it. Right. Uh, if but, you're wrong, then you're scratched, like you're out. But I was very good at like, because I knew this was my, and so it was kind of a, a tweener of like, okay, if it's a suit, like if it was a final, I probably would hold just a little bit longer than I would normally. Um, but usually prelims and whatnot, they're a little more lenient. Um, so four by two, and then our team collectively won the entire indoor state championship. Oh, wow. Good for you guys. Good for you. 
I, um, the four by two has a special place in my heart. We were, we had the top time going into the finals on Saturday, but unfortunately we finished second, which seems to be maybe a theme in my sports life because we also lost, I'm sure, as you know, the national championship. I hear about it all the time. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. So, um, which of course is because, uh, Jen Fry, who was a part of that, that team, uh, is your, am I allowed to say that on, on the podcast on the air is your girlfriend. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so the four by two holds a very special, we still have the school record, which is, which is exciting, but that race does not even exist in the college space, which is, it bums me out sometimes. Yeah. I feel like they used to do it in indoor on the college level, but I'm not sure about that. Right. Um, But it was one of my races yeah it's a good one the four by four is too long four by one a little bit too short you need that extra you need that that in between there um so the other thing that i want to go back to is is moving from the high school space to the college space you mentioned that it was important for you to go to an hbcu because your high school experience was predominantly white you wanted to be in the completely opposite uh you know kind of space for from a from a college standpoint so was it always tennessee state and i did hear you also say that your aunt was the athletic director so was that always the plan or was it you know did it kind of just all work out that way no it just worked out that way uh honestly the plan was big 10 um i had a from being from the midwest i had a lot of big 10 and max schools recruiting me um probably had not Gray's job, may have ended up at IU. Um, they were recruiting me heavy, but the only problem, they wanted me to play wide receiver, and I knew I was a defensive player. So that was going to be kind of a a concern for me, um, which, you know, sometimes you go in, it's something, and they move you around. Um, but Gray's dropped, and honestly, everyone who was interested stopped um, contacting me, talking to me. And Tennessee State actually was in the midst of a coaching change. So the funny thing is my aunt's like, hey, send me your highlight film. I'll take it over to our coach's office. And um, James Webster was the coach at the time. Well, he got released of his duties um, and he took my film with him. So the new coach who was actually Webster's defensive coordinator, Rod Reed, who ended up being my head coach. um, He's like, hey, um, because my family is from Tennessee um, and we used to go to Chattanooga, um, Tennessee for Christmas. And he's like, hey, um, I saw your film, really, really interested. Um, how about you stop by on your way, you know, for Christmas? I know you guys passed through here. How about you stop by? We sit down and talk. And he was like, hey, I want you to come on a, uh, on an official visit, see if you like it. Um, if you get your grades, up, so we'll offer you. If not, you can come sit for a year, get your grades, and we'll, you know, give you a spot on the team. I'm like, all right, cool. Went and when I tell you, my mind was completely blown. I was like, oh, this is the place for me. So I went during Christmas break and um, visited, but it wasn't, it was Christmas break. So it wasn't like a lot going on. Came back from my official. And the crazy thing is there were 23 people on my official visit. In our class um, that came in, uh, 21 were, 21 of the 23 were on my official visit. Wow. yeah, 21 of the commits were on my official visit. I mean, we had a blast. Um, but it was just the culture. Um, it was seeing so many black and brown faces. It was the music. It was the dancing. It was a fashion show at basketball games. It was a packed house. It was um, the band playing in the middle of basketball season, which, you know, for HBCU, 
Um, bands usually play at football. It's kind of a known thing. But it was like, okay, is that basketball season? It was the um, Tiger Gyms dancing. It was just electric. It was the Greeks, the Greek uh, fraternities and sororities, um, strolling, hopping, dancing, whatever they do at a game. And I'm like, there is no way. How could anybody come on a visit to a place like this and pass it up? Um, and so my aunt was hands off. She she didn't recruit me at all. Um, she's like, you know, it's a great place. If you want to come, I support you. If you want to go somewhere else, I support you either way. Um, and I actually thought about going the JUCO route. And um, my aunt's like, you don't want to go JUCO. Trust me. <laughs> like, that's not the that's not the route for you. I was a little too, um, most people say bougie. Um, and kind of, you know, juke, junior college life is like, it's it's tough. Yep. Yep. So um, respect to all the, the people who went the junior college route, but um, ended up working out for me. Nice. Very nice. It's fun. It's always fun for me to hear people talk about their college experience, both from a recruitment standpoint and from, you know, you and for you, I felt the same way about, you know, the University of Illinois, where I went for undergrad, where it's like you step on campus and it's just this it's a vibe. It's just some kind of a feeling that you feel. It sounds cheesy to say, cliche to say, but you feel it in your soul, right? That you're like, that I connect with this institution, with what's happening around me, with with everything. There's something, it's it's a form of community that you're not, I feel like, used to until you get into that space and you get into a, a spot where you fit, everything just clicks and you're like, uh, I have to be here. I don't have any other choice to, to go anywhere else. Funny story is Illinois was actually the first school to ever recruit me. Really? I really thought, you know, you get your first college recruitment letter and, and phone call and you're like, oh, I'm going there because like they're the first person. You don't know any. Right. Better. Right. Um, at the time, Illinois was great in football. They had Juice. I think it's Juice Williams. Yeah, Juice Williams. Char yeah. Mendenhall was the running back. And I was like, oh, they're good. Yep. And my mom's friend that she worked with or colleague, um, at the school she worked at was a big time um, Illinois booster and season ticket holder. Okay. So she's like, I'll take you up to a game and we can, you know, you can see what the campus is like. And I was like, I was all in on Illinois. And then everyone else started recruiting me. I was like, Oh, this right. is a whole, this is a whole ordeal. So yeah, it's, that's, right. that's, that's, that's funny. We got more crossover than I thought here. That's awesome. Yeah, a, little, a little bit. <laughs> right. Right. So, okay. So let's talk about, you know, we've, we've kind of covered here, got you to the, to the phase of college. Uh, I know you mentioned um, kind of in the, in the intro and telling me a little bit about yourself that um, your academic advisor played a huge role in, you know, kind of maybe introducing some humility and, and kind of getting you focused on, <laughs> on academics and all that good stuff. And, and uh, you know, kind of a, a check at the beginning. Um, was she also part of what inspired you then to get into the work you do now? So in student athlete development, obviously, I'm sure that your experience going from predominantly white high school to HBCU to student athlete development, seeing experiences of different people has also impacted the work you're doing in diversity, equity and inclusion. But let's start with student athlete development and kind of move into to that space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think part of it was my aunt, first and foremost. Um, I started off as a business major in undergrad, took one econ class and was like, this is not for me. Went to the communications department. I was like, oh, I can get paid to talk in front of a camera like I'm doing now. Um, not that I'm getting paid, so don't anyone uh, reach out to Taylor. Ask <laughs> podcast. But um, yeah, my aunt's like, I don't know why you didn't go over there from start. Like, I could have told you you didn't want to be a business major. And she's like, in all honesty, I think you're going to be a great athletic administrator one day. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm going to play pro anyway. Like, oh, 
maybe a second career, but never was thinking about anything outside of athletics. Um, and then reality hit me, um, tore my knee up my senior year, um, was a high NFL draft prospect, tore my knee up coming from HBCU. Um, in all honesty, scouts write you off. As soon as you get hurt at a smaller school, especially a HBCU, it's like kind of a done deal. Um, unless you come back and run like a four, two. Um, and so, you know, my aunt was the first one. I was looking for a job when I graduated, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Um, at the time, Kristen had moved on. She had left, took a job at Western Kentucky, um, which was her alma mater, and then left and went to Old Dominion. So I was trying to figure it out. My aunt's like, you know, we have a sports information director intern position open if you're interested. Like, you like talking, you like, you enjoy writing. So I started off there, um, but knew quickly I didn't want to do it. Hours were way too long. It's probably the most thankless job in college athletics, in all honesty. Um, and so I, I used all my funds that I had from being an intern, went to a NCAA Women's Final Four in 2018. Um, my aunt was on the selection committee for that, so I was able to rub elbows with some top-notch people. And so I would say between my academic advisor um, and Jill Bodensteiner, who's now the athletic director, at St. Joe, she was at Notre Dame at the time. She's like, you know, what are you doing these days? And she offered me um, a compliance intern position at Notre Dame. So I did that for a summer. Um, and they actually had a student development position come open at Notre Dame. That part of the story probably relates directly to why, uh, in part, I created Depth Chart Database later on in my life. Um, Great opportunity. Had a lot of people in the Notre Dame athletic department um, really pulling for me to get the opportunity in position. Um, had a completely different background than everyone who worked in their student athlete development office and was passed up for the opportunity. Um, and so I ended up leaving because I felt like if you have everyone pulling for you in the athletic department, if you're doing a great job, um, not that I say I was doing a great job myself, but everyone else saying it. And you still don't get the opportunity to say, okay, maybe this isn't the place for me. So um, didn't end my journey there. Um, still, I left and went to Austin P, where it's probably the, not the real start of my career, but the student development side. Um, had a great supervisor, Ryan Combs, and their student athlete development department was brand new. And so I was able to do a lot and, and be very hands-on, um, run some programs for myself and just kind of figure it out. And because I was still young, I was able to connect with student athletes. Um, the weird part was Austin P was in the same conference as my alma mater. We were rivals. So Austin P actually played um, Tennessee State for Tennessee State's homecoming, and we lost. Tennessee State lost, should I say. I was working at Austin P, but I was standing on the Tennessee State sideline as an alum with my teammates. And I mean, when I'm telling you the clock hit zeros and the student athletes beelined it to come to, to talk trash to me. So that was kind of the start of student development. I knew because of the impact my academic advisor had on me um, was a direct correlation and kind of why I wanted to get into student athlete development slash academics. Okay, awesome. 
And you've been working on, I saw that you just finished your uh, master's in curriculum and instruction for social justice. So I got it again, the crossover here, I'm working on my PhD in curriculum and instruction. I also got to take us back to, to undergrad because I also started out as a business major, got into that econ class. and was like, become best friends. I know this is what I'm saying. I was like, I, I can't do this. So I got into advertising instead, which is, you know, it's not communications, but there's some similarities there for sure, for sure. But um, so the master's uh, curriculum and instruction for social justice, what prompted you to pursue that specific program? How has that impacted how you're thinking about student athlete development? Where, where are we at with that? I was all over the place. Well, I knew when I got to Loyola, one of my biggest things was I had to get a master's because I couldn't move forward in the athletic realm without a master's because I tell my student athletes now, a master's degree now is what a bachelor's was 20 years ago. You can't get a job really if you don't have a master's at this point. Um, And so I was actually looking at an educational leadership program here. And the year I was able to start because, you know, you have to work for a year before you get the tuition remission benefit. The year I was able to start, they changed the educational leadership to you had to be a teacher, a certified teacher in order to get into that program. So I'm like, okay, well, that eliminates that option. And I'm like, okay, what's the next best option? Um, Didn't want to do another communications degree. Didn't want to do anything in sight because we're a smaller institution. So we don't have a ton of programming. Um, but I was looking in the education room, like, oh, curriculum instruction, social justice sounds interesting. Um, went to a, uh, what do they call it? Like a open, um, what do they call it? Where you just kind of come to see what the program is about, an uh, open forum kind of thing. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. Signed up, got in, um, or applied, got in. Took one summer class, um, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is this is up my alley, like, I can I can see this. And I'm telling you, from the first day in class, I was like, I was like, forget college athletics. I want to start a charter school. I want to do all these things. And the program was really great because my professors were like, you don't have to like jump from what you're doing now all the way to the deep end and want to start a school and all of these things. But what we can do is we can tailor the program to things that you can do in college athletics to help change. So a lot of my work where my classmates were talking about um, English, English language learners and, um, you know, school to prison pipeline and things of that sort, 1619 project, all of those things, I was like, okay, how do I tailor this towards my athletes? How do I tailor this towards athletic departments? Um, And so they were really supportive of Uh, my thinking in that area and also encouraging me to do things that would challenge athletic departments. Um, And they really appreciated the different perspective because for the most part, my people in my class were talking about K through 12 and I was the opposite side of how do we do certain things for college students. Very good. Very good. So everything I'm seeing this theme, right. Of, of like, everything is, is weaving together. One piece is a foundation moving into the next. I love it. I love it. So we've talked briefly about depth chart database and, and kind of, you know, maybe what subconsciously drove you, you know, to create that previously, but, but obviously now it's become a reality. So where did the idea, you know, where did it come from? Where are you at now with it? Uh, And, and what's on the horizon? What do we think is, is the next phase for it? Yeah, so it started last spring um, after 
all the social unrest and uprising. Not that I think we say that as like it was this new thing or phenomenon and it's been going on. Um, I think people just got frankly tired of it more so than maybe in the past. I think the great thing about millennials and this generation is we don't accept this is how things have been. Um, we push the norm. We we challenge things. We ask a lot of questions. Um, and I think you see that in you're starting to see so many young entrepreneurs you see in high school and college students who are like, oh, I don't have to go to school to start a business. I just need to figure it out. Right. And so I started after the social unrest as a black man working in college athletics. I was like, what can I do to help change? And so I did some webinars um, last summer or um uh, not this past summer, but the summer of, I guess that would have been 2020. Um, mm-hmm. One was um, how to care for colleagues during um, time of crisis. Um, one was what role do student athletes play um, in changing um, kind of the landscape of college athletics and, and the politics um, that come with it. And then I also did one on how to care for your student athletes of color. Right. And so did these webinars, got pretty good turnout and feedback. And it was like, what else can I do? And I really started to look at the numbers. I started to look at um, the ties report, started to look at the NCAA um, demographics. I'm like, wow, we have this large percentage of student athletes of color, um, roughly 28% of student athletes in NCAA divisions one through three identify as a person of color. Um, but only like 13, 14% of the people working with those student athletes identify as a person of color. And I'm like, how do we get that percentage to be higher and closer to reflecting what that student athlete population was? And so in my head, I was like, okay, I'm going to create a search firm um, that only represents people of color, right? And try to get people in leadership roles. And I'm talking to my aunt, who's a retired athletic director. She's like, one, nobody's going to hire you because you don't have the experience. You've never been an AD. Um, so reality check, some humility again. <laughs> there you um, go. But I think you're on to something. You just need to figure out pinpoint it. All right. So then I talked to Jill Bodensteiner. She's like, yeah, she's a lawyer by trade, even though she's an athletic director. She's like, great idea, but nobody's going to hire you because of, you know, Title VI, I believe it is. You can't discriminate based off race, gender, religion, all of that stuff. All right. She's like, but you've already been putting this Excel sheet together of like athletic directors of color and whatnot. Why don't you just create a database? Like, okay. So I started doing that um, and doing it. And I'm like, okay, this is going to take way too long to try to create. Um, What can I do? Tweeted it out. um, And was like, you know, if anyone has interns or students who need um, credit for their internship, let me know. I could use some interns. Um, and Sherrod Williams, who's at Texas A&M Commerce, um, was a close friend of mine. He calls me, I'm at the beach. It's like midnight. He's like, yo, I just saw your tweet. You need some interns. I could probably get you a whole class. And I'm like, for real? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, how? He's like, you know, our sport management department, yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, all right. So he puts me in contact, um, with, uh, Clay Bolton, who's one of the professors in their sport management department. and um, Rest in peace. Um, one of their professors um, just passed actually recently, who was very essential um, to helping us 
with depth chart database. It was actually her class. She was teaching like a social justice and sports class. And so um, she was essential in helping us get depth chart database off the ground, helping us come up with ideas and create this game changing platform. And so um, did that partner with them launched in May of this year, took a year to build it out, what it looks like. Um, and so right now we're currently at the place where we're trying to get people of color to realize this is a tool to help them get better opportunities and to avoid some of the obstacles that many people um, before them have had to deal with in terms of getting better opportunities. Um, as you know, um, because you, you were um, in the college athletics realm in a different capacity than you are now. Um, people of color are leaving college athletics in drones. Like they're getting out of here. Cause they're like, if I'm going to be stressed, if I'm going to have to deal with a lot, I'd rather make a whole lot of money in the corporate world or in professional sports and be stressed than to not make, you know, money um, and work in college athletics and not have an opportunity to move up to be a decision maker. Um, and so created the idea, you know, just trying to diversify applicant pools. We're not telling athletic departments that they have to hire anyone specifically, but if you exclude 50%, uh, there's a quote, if you exclude 50% um, of the talent pool, for whatever reason, systematically, you know, discriminating because your network all looks like you, right? And you're going to just hire one of your buddy's friends um, or someone that they suggest that works for them. And maybe um, then there's a, no wonder why your athletic departments look the same. No wonder why um, you maybe don't have the talented, most talented staff in the country. Um, because you're kind of staying within um, your network. And um, there's an article um, that Hefner wrote, I think it was 2019, it said, um, elite schools, athletic departments resemble country clubs. Mm -hmm. It's like, you have to be invited in to be a part of um, college athletics realm, essentially. Yep. Yep. Which is directly affecting people of color getting those opportunities, right? Um, I think we saw improvement specifically on the men and women's basketball side where about 50% of the people hired last year um, were black um, and brown men and women. But that was a direct correlation to what was transpiring throughout our country, right? Right. Um, will that trend happen this year or will it go back to, oh, there were 50 openings and 75% of the openings went to white men specifically. Right. Um, and so... Uh, that's the, the premise of depth chart database, just trying to diversify applicant pools, trying to get as many people of color to sign up and create profiles um, and trying really to get athletic departments to see this is a resource. This isn't professional development, but this is a resource to help them create the best staffs possible. What you just described uh, about country clubs, about networks with uh, specifically with minorities in athletics, there's a very similar uh, pattern for women, specifically women who serve in the SWA designation. And it's, I was just reading an article about, it's so funny we're having this conversation right now because I was just reading an article the other day about, I think it was called network isolation. And the author's name right now is evading me, but it was saying the same thing, right? Like there's the SWAs over here on one side who have their whole network. They're very connected, interconnected with each other, which I feel like is probably the same with minority candidates and, and black and brown people working in athletics. 
And then you have essentially the white men who and who are in AD positions who are all, you know, interconnected, really well connected with each other, but there's not much crossover in between the two, right? And so it makes it so difficult to, even though you have this, this great network wherever you are, you don't have the crossover into the country club or into the space that you need to be in to be the plug for somebody else to elevate your own career. So network isolation is a major issue, I think across the board, but especially for just as you're mentioning the percentage of black and brown people that are working specifically in college athletics, where we know the percentage of student athletes coming from those same backgrounds are much, much higher than the people who are, are represented in the athletic department. So I think it's powerful stuff. It's super, it's super exciting, obviously to, it's super exciting to see people working on important things, but even more so when it ties for me specifically, when it ties into to college athletics and the student athlete experience and ultimately being able to have an impact on that. I think it's major. So props to yeah. you for, for the idea and for seeing it through. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I think two things come to mind. Um, and one of the things that let me know I was doing the right thing in creating this um, was when Wells Fargo CEO said, well, we would love to hire yes. uh, more black and brown people, but there aren't any working in the banking world. Yes, there are. Right. Like, really? Really? And so for depth chart database, most people um, when they reach out to talk to me about using the database or whatnot, or like, oh, you're a job board, we can post our job um, that we have open on your website. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that. Right. But it works is you pay to get access to a database that has roughly 9,000 people of color in the database, but you have to do the work um, in order to find them. So I've provided you an opportunity. The you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. We've been posting on job boards for, I don't know, 50 years, 100 years, whenever job boards were created. And in all honesty, it was to create these opportunities to diversify applicant pools, right? When I was at the University of Notre Dame in their HR department, they specifically had a Black woman whose sole job was to go out and find diverse candidates to apply for Notre Dame jobs so that they could have more diverse applicant pools. Right. To check the box. Why do university athletic departments post on job boards to diversify applicant pools? White people apply for jobs. I don't know what it is, but there's like this radar that goes off. And it's like, hey, you're looking for a job. There's a job opening, whether they're qualified or not. Right. And I think as a person of color, because I've done this myself, is I'll look at a job and I'm oh, not qualified, don't have a master's or don't have this many years. Um, and so I will not apply, not realizing that, okay, maybe if I just apply, I'll get an opportunity. Mm-hmm. If I get an opportunity, more than likely the job is mine because right. I just know how to interview. But for a lot of people, I heard, um, I think, I don't know who it was. I think it was Dr. Victoria Ferris who presents with um, Jen Fry all the time. And she said, for people of color, you got to start having the confidence of a white man because a white man believes that whatever job um, that's open, they can apply for it whether they're qualified or not, and they have an opportunity to get the job. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'm just challenging our athletic leadership and athletic departments to put their money where their mouth is. Everyone made statements last year about we're going to look to diversify and be more inclusive and to build you know better athletic departments that resemble our student athletes. And yet what's the turnover 
Yeah. You know, if you look at the um, NCAA demographic database, almost every job within college athletics, um, white people make up 80 percent NCAA divisions one through three in those roles. Yeah. Except jobs. Yeah. Academics and student development or life skills, whichever one you want to call it. Yep. Why yep. is that? Well, usually the person that they a student athlete of color relates to the most is their academic advisor or life skills person. And so when they get into college athletics, where do they go? They go to student development. So how do we create opportunities for more people of color to realize, okay, um, I can be a head athletic trainer, but are they getting opportunities? There's only 4% black people who are head athletic trainers in NCAA divisions one through three, 3% if you're a Latino, 2% if you're Asian. So if there's only that many, okay, why would I go in athletic training when I have no opportunity to be, to run the athletic training area? Right. Right. If I'm in development, why would I want to go that route when there's not many people who are running the development department and raising the money for these institutions? And the big thing for me that I say is, especially you look at football, you look at men and women's basketball. Okay. These Black and brown student athletes are good enough to be your captains and you give them the responsibility to run your team, but you don't give them the same opportunity to run your athletic department. That's a mic drop moment right there. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, it's just, you know, we have to challenge ourselves, you know, we're here to maybe bring people to the table with different perspectives, not realizing it's going to help us grow and be better. Yep. Yep. You got to be able to, I mean, as an athletic department, be able to ask yourself better questions about, okay, why do we look, you know, 80% white as a department and why aren't there, you know, diverse candidates who are applying to, to our position. So absolutely. I love it. I love hearing, I mean, everything you just said is, is spot on. It's good stuff. So what I want to do now is we'll shift into the, the kind of final phase of, of the show. And I want to talk about, and you've, you've touched on maybe a little bit of this, but I would love to hear specifically what is one experience or even a series of experiences for you that you feel like has helped you bloom into the person that you are today. Whew. Um, <laughs> To tailor it to just one? Wow. Um, hmm. I'm going to go with um, tearing my knee up my senior year in college. Um, Like I said, I was a highly rated draft prospect going into my senior year and then got injured, was not the same player at all. Um, NFL career doomed. Um, greatly depressed, probably went through a six month depression to where I was living with my aunt in Nashville. I literally would just get out the bed, shower, eat, and go back in the room and watch TV for six months. And one day my aunt came in and was like, Hey, you got to get up and start figuring it out. Like start applying for jobs. And the first job I really started was like a part-time football coach at Hillsborough high school in Nashville. Um, where actually my cousin, um, my cousins um, played um, their high school ball there. And that was probably what changed my whole mindset. Um, I was able to help student athletes. I was able to use the passion that I had from playing into coaching and helping these young men realize the reality of life, right? Um, I, I didn't even have a car. Um, I was using someone else's car. I was picking student athletes up for practice, dropping them off. 
um, buying them dinner, um, whatever the case may be, um, just to feel the same joy that I felt from playing. And I think that carried over into me saying, okay, like I can get into college athletics because I have the same passion of helping um, young men and women um, achieve their goals that I did of trying to achieve mine. And so I would say had not not gotten hurt. I mean, Jen messes with me all the time. She was like, if you didn't get hurt, I would have never met you. You would be this cocky, arrogant, probably NFL player, you know, with a lot of money and, you know, whatnot. And so um, I would say that's the one thing or one of the main things that helps um, me bloom into who I am today. What would you say is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? I don't know if it's advice, but it was something my mom helped me realize. And I think um, people don't even realize that this is a real thing. Um, But, you know, most people are afraid to fail. I was the opposite. I was afraid to succeed. And my mom would always tell me, don't be afraid of success. And mostly it was because where I grew up, um, seeing a lot of great high school football players and whatnot, never get past high school playing high school football in small town of Fort Wayne, Indiana. It was always like that was the that was the end goal. Be like talked about for 20 years after you were done playing high school in this area. Um, And I don't think a lot of people realize like there is a such thing as a fear of success if you've never seen what that looks like if you've never seen someone i mean i I would say i still have it now um it's a little bit different um in starting a business and being an entrepreneur right it's like i don't know what the outcome this could be a really life-changing thing for people of color and for college athletics um and it's like i've never seen anyone do it and then now i'm dating jen fry and she's doing it on this grand scale right of really changing lives and so um i would say don't be afraid of success i like it i like it a lot don't be afraid of success okay so final phase of the show we do the i can't even remember what we've been calling this this is how rusty i am right now it's yeah, like i love it love it's it essentially it's essentially a lightning round okay. i think i think i wanted to call it I'm, I'm drawing on my memory here i think i wanted to call it the quick peel round because you know bloom onion quick peel right. uh and my sidekick wanted to call it the slap chop round which i don't like slap chop <laughs> i like okay. quick peel i like um what else do you do to onions dice it's real quick dice you dice them see and that's where i think she was coming from with the slap chop but it's no, like i get it but it's a little bit of a stretch so we'll, dice it up We'll keep it as the uh, we'll keep it as the quick peel for for the for today's show. But okay, so five questions. Uh, the final is a fill in the blank. The first question: What is your favorite TV show? Can I have multiples? <laughs> <laughs> You're as best you can. The the maybe top two. I'll say. All right, so I'm going to go Game of Thrones. Ooh. Um, and I'm going to say. Martin. Fair. Okay. To kind of polar opposites, but I like it. For the culture. Like it. Martin's for the culture. That's been my favorite <laughs> show my whole life. And Game of Thrones is like, this was the greatest show with the worst ending ever. The last season was awful, but 
all the seasons before that kind of make up. That is the consensus. You know what? I just went back through and watched it recently from start to finish. And if you, the ending to me, the first time I saw it, I agree with you. The ending to me now, having watched it again, makes slightly better sense. More sense. I can see it. You know what I mean? Like I can see it building to that point. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm doing it now. I'm on season three. Okay. But... I feel like part of the reason the ending was bad was because, like they said, they ran out of money because that show cost so much to make. Yeah, yeah, which is fair, which is fair. All right, number two, favorite food. Crab legs. Ooh, okay. Coffee. They have to be seasoned right. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, you're you're Upper East Coast, so crab legs, that makes sense up there. Uh, (laughs) Coffee or tea? Tea, absolutely, all day, every day. Give me a vanilla chai. No sugar in the vanilla, though. Okay. Hot or cold, depending on, obviously, the weather outside. Interesting. Okay. Okay, number four, favorite vacation destination? All right, so this is tough because I have places that I haven't been yet that are already booked. I'm going to Greece next month, so we'll see. But right now, Barcelona. Easily went this summer for my 30th birthday and it was amazing. That's awesome. I've I have wanted to go there. I had a friend that studied abroad in the area and have heard wonderful things. I would say I, I have to go back because you're not able to go out. Yeah. So yeah. like everything shuts down at two, but like um people in Barcelona said that they don't even go out to enjoy their night until like on a regular one or two a.m. I'm like, right. What? They eat dinner at 10 p.m. I was over there like, yo, I'm starving. Right. And everything really shuts down from like three to five. Right. CS, you got to take a nap in the middle of the day over there. I, listen, it's late for like the the dinner and going out. That's late for me. Like I'm in bed, you know, nine o'clock, nine thirty. But listen, if I get to take a three hour nap in the middle of the day, then maybe I have more energy for that kind of thing. I got to go back to Barcelona if I want to go out with someone else because you are Jen Fry's pupil. Jen will be in the bed with book. Like, right. I'm fine. I'm not going anywhere. So. Yep. Yep. Got to get that good sleep in, man. Okay. The last one. Onions are blank. Onions are I'm trying to figure out how to word it. I have what I want to say, but I got to word it. Onions are essential to the right dish. I love to hear it. Essential to the right dish. I love to hear it. All right. That concludes our our quick peel slash lightning slash slap chop round. Daniel, thank you so much for for taking the time out of your day to to join me. Talk a little bit about yourself. Share, you know, about your journey all the way up to to depth chart database. I so appreciate it. It's nice to to knock the rust off and, and get back to it here on the Bloom Pod. Thank you for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. It's been a long time coming. First podcast of many. Um, I know you're busy. Um, so good luck with everything going on with your dissertation. And to all the people of color, sign up, sign up, sign up. If you're in the athletic department and you're trying to diversify your applicant pools, please reach out to me. Look forward to hearing from you. Yes, yes. So we'll be sure to include the link in, in today's uh, post and all that good stuff so it's easily accessible. All right. Thank you again, and, and we'll catch you next time. All right, have a good one. 
Stay tuned for the recap of this episode with my sidekick, Melissa Lutz. It was giving me some strange options. Um, It's asking me if I want to leave the meeting because you're recording it. So I guess Zoom has some new privacy protocols. I guess they do. Please don't leave. Recording this meeting is the whole point of our of our meeting. <laughs> All right, I guess I'll stay. <laughs> um, we are here today. We are gathered here today to recap an episode of the Bloom Pod, an interview. And we have not done this, even though we just did our, you know, recap, rehash our perhaps not so triumphant return to podcasting. Uh, We've not done a recap since February, January. I don't know. We're rusty. We are rusty. I'm a little nervous. Are you nervous? Not so triumphant. I didn't like that you said that. I thought our (laughs) triumphant was, our our re-entrance was triumphant, but um, to each their own. uh, I told some very riveting tales of what I've been up to. So, you did gently offended, but it's fine. Um, I enjoyed. Yeah, we're, we're gonna be a little rusty, so just like give us some grace, okay? Um, literally, my first note from that interview was that I felt a little rusty interviewing, like almost as if I realized mid-interview how long it had actually been since I had interviewed someone for the purposes of a podcast. So at, at least um, we're on the same page both rusty <laughs> i mean did it sound that way when when you were listening to it you're not giving me no much- i just i like that we both thought hey oh. rusty like <laughs> we might not be doing our best but we're on the same page and we're at the same level right i like that you just went to that because i was looking for i like no nah, you did great <laughs> oh uh you did you did so good taylor i was i'm so proud of you thank you so much melissa Thank you so much. What about me? You also did so great. <laughs> I'm not above fishing for compliments. <laughs> Never have been. Watch <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyway, um, it was so fun to like, you know, get back in the saddle. A, uh, and it was also so fun to talk to Daniel in general, because I know that we have, you know, just a lot of uh, mutual contacts. I think on, you know, both, both ends, certainly one in particular, uh, he mentioned, you know, that his partner is Jen Fry, which is probably the biggest connector that we have, but it was fun talking to him and getting to know his background. I didn't know really any of that stuff. You know, I know what he's doing obviously with, with, uh, depth chart database right now, but I didn't know any of that other stuff. Uh, me either. And I will have, you know, that I'm fighting the urge to tell you that I want to be his friend. Cause I know I say that about everyone. So <laughs> Um, that's all I'm going to say on that. <laughs> I mean, would it be a bloom pod recap if you did not say that? I think we're batting a hundred percent, um, for me wanting to be friends with the guests you bring on the show. So let's just keep going. Did you say a hundred percent? Let's not do this again. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, it's, so easy to sl- it's so easy to slip right back into our old ways <laughs> <laughs> we are who we are we haven't changed even in um the past eight nine months that I'd we've like, been away i'd like to think that we've changed a little 
I think we're always staying the same. <laughs> I knew that was coming. <laughs> I knew that was coming. Um, good. Right, good old bridesmaids. Anyway, um, I felt a little rusty, but I enjoyed doing it. Loved the conversation. What what first note, besides being rusty, did you have? Oh, I didn't think you were rusty on interviewing Daniel. I just, I thought you were saying that about our, our re-intro last week. Oh, no. Oh, thank you. See, now that's why I was surprised when you said, yeah, we're both hypothetically patting you on the head and saying, you did a good job. Thank you. (laughs) I I hypothetically appreciate that. (laughs) I don't think you do. (laughs) Uh, Right. The interview was great. And I I apologize for um, making you think otherwise. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Daniel's story I really liked, like, and I really like the time he spent, like, reflecting and taking things away from his experiences, Um, specifically the knee injury that made him essentially ineligible to go to the NFL. And, like, I think it's really impressive that in the face of adversity, he found opportunity and took the time to reflect on the fact that he's not just an athlete. He's more than just an athlete. And I like, that's something that to me is so important because we all go through hard things in our lives and we can use it to define us in a good or a bad way. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of him for using <laughs> that opportunity. That would be super hard. And I know you've experienced this firsthand, like any athlete that leaves athletics is now is then faced with like, who am I? I was defined for so long by my skill on the court, on the field. Um, and now I'm, that's not a defining factor anymore. And it's almost like you're recreating your identity. So I love how he used that opportunity and the things that he's built since completely shifting what he envisioned for his career path. I think athlete, sorry, I'm getting nudges from a very small uh, furry visitor who just woke up from small. He's not that small. He's about 70 pounds, we think, and only seven months old. Um, and for those of you who can't see us, I am referring to my puppy. A and giant not, cat. <laughs> and not a, a strange varmint um, who has joined. But I was going to say, I think that, you know. I wish you had told them that it was like, you got a pet hamster that is now. <laughs> to be <laughs> A hamster that's 70 pounds. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. There's a raccoon we've been overfeeding from trash, and now he's our our pet. He is very large. Um, No, but in all seriousness, he's a very cute dog. He is a pretty cute. I mean, I'm biased in saying so, but he's pretty cute. Um, Athlete identity is what I was going to go to next um, in saying that I think it's something that, at least in athletics, you you're aware of it, right? Like, Oh, I'm an athlete. This is who I am. Whatever. I think what people are not aware of is how much that affects you. And I think the maybe the closest way you can imagine it and it happens in every facet of life, right? It's not just for athletes who are transitioning out of college or out of their pro experience or whatever. Like this happens to students who leave college. This happens to people who retire from working in a job they've worked in for 30 or 40 years. It happens, I think, across the board. And just the the impact that it has on 
your identity and ultimately the, the, like your worth, like what you feel you are worth in the world, I think is just massive. So it's so, um, I don't even know what the word I want to use here. I guess refreshing. So nice to hear that when a setback, like, a you know, career ending injury happens to an athlete that they are able to, after a while, of course, it takes some time. And he mentioned that he was, you know, on the couch for a while. And finally, I think it was his aunt that came in and was like, all right, let's come on. Like you got to go find a job. So, you know, after a while, after you take the time to kind of grieve and, and, uh, just settle into the fact that your identity is different and won't ever be the same. Um, it's, it's nice to hear that you're essentially able to turn that trial into a triumph. Absolutely. And I'm curious, um, what, if you don't mind sharing a little bit of what that was like for you. I think it's something, first of all, identity is something to me, like in general, you know, I love personality assessments, the Enneagram. I think everyone's tired of hearing from me about the Enneagram. Um, Everyone except for me. (laughs) Right. True. You do like it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So personalities in general, and really just like what makes us tick is, is of great interest to me when it comes to identity. I think it's something that I've realized and, and experienced over and over and over and over again, when it comes to my student athlete experience and what I think about with that identity transition, I think I kind of got it on both ends because on the way in coming from high school to college, it was, I don't know if culture shock is the right, I mean, I guess it is because I grew up in a town of 500 people and suddenly I was surrounded by, you know, 40,000 students and people who had, you know, they're from all over the place. And so a little bit of culture shock in that capacity from an athletic standpoint, I was athletic enough to fit into the gym volleyball wise. I had no idea what I didn't know. And, and to the point that I was like, Oh my gosh, there's so much more to this game than I realized. And I can remember uh, freshman year, we were at a tournament and we were playing, I don't know why, but we played hangman before, um, games like the you know you write a there's so many dashes and then if you get the word wrong whatever you know we were playing that and the um the person who was going kylie mccully had written or maybe it was Cump, one of the two of them had written out the phrase ball setter ball hitter ball which in volleyball is an eye tracking technique to follow the the ball, the block, the setter, the hitter, that kind of stuff to like time out when you should be jumping, what you should be watching, that kind of thing. Pretty common knowledge for, for college volleyball players, especially at the division one power five level, I would say. I had never heard that in my life before we played hangman before that match. And so for me, when I'm thinking back about my experience and just, you know, what I knew about the game and what I didn't know about the game, I'm thinking like specifically about that moment, like, oh, wow, if I had known that, imagine how good I could be at this point, you know, and I'm just kind of thinking about that through the rest of my experience. Cause every year I learned something, obviously that was like, huh, if I would have known this freshman year, then I could have, you know, done X, Y, Z better. So I think, you know, I had it on the front end where I was a, a, big fish in a small pond and then had to adjust to becoming a very small fish in a very large pond. Uh, and then the transition on the back end when you have put, and I wasn't a starter, right? Like I wasn't, 
I didn't play really at all in my four years. And so the, but, but the ties that I had from an identity standpoint, like I was still pretty wrapped up in Taylor Onion, the volleyball player. Like, I think there's, you know, there's a, like a, I don't want to say a status because that sounds vain, but there's a community associated with that. And when you leave that disappears, right? Like you still are connected with people and, and all those good things, but you're no longer around, you know, thousands of people who are your exact age going through very similar stuff to what you're experiencing at the same time that you're experiencing it. And it just is like instantly lonely. If you, if you don't actively seek out, or if you don't move to a city where your friends are, or if you, you know, it, it's, it's just tough. And it's not something that, that I think is talked about enough. You, I think literally just read straight from my notes. <laughs> One of the things I had written was when uh, Daniel talked about being afraid to succeed. And the note I have is afraid to succeed, afraid to outgrow an area of comfort, afraid to be a small fish in a big pond when you're used to being a big fish in a small pond. Wow. Did I read from your notes? I don't know. I think you did. <laughs> like, Tay, hey, I think you may have experienced this firsthand is literally what I wrote. And <clears throat> seemingly you did. Right. Uh, yeah. No, that's, that is pretty spot on. Pretty much exactly what I experienced. Um, I, yeah, that's, it's a, it's unique, but it's also not. Did you, I mean, when you were leaving and you went to Wrigleyville after college, so you were kind of still around young people around some of the people that we went to school with, but did you feel any kind of identity crisis transition? Who am I? I think for me, it was more so that like, I hadn't been put in a position or put myself in a position where I had to define who I was. Like, Mm. I didn't have coaches asking me that question. I didn't have a community of people like you did forcing me to think about that. Um, And I think we all like grow over time, but like, I think my identity was just like, I love everybody. I'm fun (laughs) and and I want to get along with everyone. And I don't know. I was like in high school, just friends with all the different groups and didn't really define myself as like, I'm an athlete. I'm a theater kid. I'm a dancer. I'm a whatever, you know, scholastic person I kind of like was involved in it all mm-hmm. um and I still think like maybe that's my one of my defining factors um but I think I really once when, when I left college work became my defining factor and I am maybe dealing with the repercussions of that right now <laughs> because Um, for me, it's super easy to like, that's, that was what I was focused on. So I give, give work my all, um, probably to my own detriment, working extra hours and like wanting to be successful because that was the time I was like put in a situation where I was like, okay, this is my identity. This is the biggest thing in my life and the, where I spend most of my time. So I want to be seen as successful. And, um, I think so I'm speaking out loud. No, I already, I've come to this realization that I am someone who lets work define me. And when I'm really good, like my best was when I opened the coffee shop and I was really proud of the work that I was contributing to the world and the the good impact that it had. Um, 
but now I'm having to find a little balance in my life for my own health and well-being. Mm-hmm. I think that's a I think that's a good call on your part, knowing what I know of your work schedule. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like not specific to the job I'm in now. Like I work a lot of hours now, but I, there are ways I could mitigate that. And I think that's a me thing more so than it is a the job I'm in thing. Cause I find that in any role I take on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did not experience the same things you did. And I think opposite. I didn't define myself and then I had to kind of figure out who I am and what I value and what I want my legacy to be, what I want people to view me as, um, kind of on the inverse of the timeline that you did. Right. I think, I mean, that's something that from, from a student development, student affairs standpoint, I think that ability to I don't want to say spread yourself thin, but the ability to, you know, be the Melissa on campus who, as we're, you know, walking to class or walking to, you know, a bar or restaurant or whatever it is, like we literally, a walk that should have taken us five to 10 minutes would without fail take us 30 to 40 minutes because every block you're running into somebody that you knew. And it was, they're from, you know, it's not like they were all from the same thing. Like it was, oh, that's so-and-so from this class. Oh, that's from this club. Oh, I know them from blah, blah, blah. And I think that ability to, you know, put yourself, it's like, just don't put all your eggs in one basket, like try different things out and see if you might like this, that, or the other. And that does, I think, help with that identity transition, because then you have so many things to fall back on. If you do, you know, if you fail in one space, then you have something else to come and, you know, come back and rely on or be a part of or whatever it is. So it's, it's all very interesting. That stuff. I'm, I'm so, um, I'm glad you brought it up because it wasn't actually in my notes, I think, because I experience it and see it on a much more regular basis because of the space that I work in. And so it's like, it's always interesting to hear the perspective of somebody who didn't go through the same kind of identity transition or loss or whatever. True. Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Wait, I have, okay. So I wanted to talk, switch things a little bit. Maybe you can edit that. So that wasn't so jumbly. Um, (laughs) I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, um, more of the why Daniel created the company that he did, the experiences that he had in the world. And there was a few things that he said that I wrote down verbatim because I was like, as a, a white person, it's jarring to hear those things. Um, and I can only imagine what it's like for Daniel and other people of color. So um, the fact that the, was it the, president of Wells Fargo said that they would hire more people of color, but they're not, they don't exist in the banking world. Like, right. Like, Oh, we wish we could, but they're just not bankers. Like what? (laughs) That's not a thing. Right. You know Uh, what I did, what I did just see on that note though, they Wells Fargo has partnered with, I want to say Regina King to offer, I'm Googling right now because I want to look it up um, to, to like offer financial education to 
Yeah, Regina King partners with Wells Fargo to help underserved communities. So hopefully that's actually doing something and it's not just, um, as I think Tim Bryson put it uh, last summer, optical allyship, where they Uh, got, you know, a big name actress to say, oh yeah, we're going to do this. Hopefully it actually is doing something. Yeah, and I think it's it's a good step um, if they're actually doing the right thing with it. But I think the issue is that, like, they're, they're standing behind their stance that the people don't exist in the industry and yeah. ignoring the fact that they've, like, made a very bold statement that is just not true. And instead of going out and finding the people that do work in the industry and hiring them and admitting that that wasn't a false statement. They're like, Oh, we're just going to paint ourselves in a good light. And like, it's like, I can't think of the right words. Like a pity complex. Like we're right. here to help. Right. Those people, people of color are completely capable. It's the, the white getting that education and like being fantastic candidates yeah. in the industry and they exist out there. Right. Without question, so find, it's, find them. It's the white savior complex. Exactly. That's yeah. the thank you. That is the exact phrase I was trying to think of. Yeah. Like going in and thinking that you are in a better position to provide help that can't get it for themselves and you know better right. and you're going to teach them right. your ways. Right. Literally, that is, I mean, when you think about the history of the entire country, the pilgrims coming into Native Americans and being like, Oh, and then the boarding schools later in later years that were like, oh, we're going to westernize these Native American children. And, you know, now they're at a point where the, the traditions and dialect and, and knowledge that should have been passed from generation to generation isn't. It's like so it's so far and few between because of uh, because of the white savior complex. It's something that like with generous and with. Um, nonprofits that we partner with and just being involved in that world is super important and prevalent when we are deciding like nonprofits that we want to donate to because so Humanity and Hope is our was our first and um, first like major partner Um, and I respect the work that they do so much because they go into these communities in Honduras and they sit down and say what do you need and what's stopping you from getting there? Not here's what you need. And here I've brought it to you. Let me teach you our ways. They sit and listen and talk to the people and ask questions and then find out what is keeping them from reaching those goals and say, okay, what resources and solutions can we bring to help you to move past that? Because you know what you need. You live in this community. We don't. Mm -hmm. We don't know what you want. We don't know what you desire from life. And we're not here to tell you what it would deem you as successful. Right. Doing air. <laughs> um, so it's something that like I've come across a lot in just like conversations with people that work for nonprofits. And um, it's sad that it it is a super prevalent problem that mm-hmm. people want a hand up, not a handout, and they don't want to be told what they need. Mm-hmm. And so it it almost creates this like friction between like the people 
trying to help and and the community that they're they're wanting to help because they don't you don't want it if someone comes right. to you and is like you're doing it wrong let me show you the american way right i'm not gonna want that help i'm like i know what i'm doing right wrong. they're not they're I'm not, not american wrong. yeah i'm just running into obstacles right well also they're like uh, other countries are not america so what works here might not work somewhere else. It might be the exact opposite of what would be helpful somewhere else. But there are a lot of groups and people out there that are doing it the right way and listening and talking and not telling. Right. So that is promising. Right. I think to me, what's so a fantastic, um, I think I'm just going to leave it at that. What's so fantastic about what Daniel is doing with the depth chart database is that it um, it eliminates the excuse of like with athletic directors and athletic organizations that Wells Fargo used like well I just I don't know he, I mean he's literally got I think he said thousands of candidates qualified candidates in probably every single field of athletics who are featured within that database. So if you are saying, gosh, I don't know, you know, we've, we've posted the job so many times and we're just not getting diverse candidates into the pool or we're not getting qualified candidates into the pool or whatever it may be. Like you're actively making a decision to not search or not, you know, do, do the hiring, go through the hiring process in a way that's going to bring you diverse candidates. You have to be intentional about that hiring. You can't just throw it up and then expect to get diverse candidates. It's not going to happen. Right. You have to do the work. Right. And I think I made this as a note, so I'm going to read it verbatim because I was (laughs) careful that I want to say this correctly. Um, But I wrote this down. We as white people have to take responsibility for the fact that people of color do not feel qualified for jobs in industries that are primarily white because we are the ones who made them that way. And it's cyclical and perpetuates itself. So we've created these industries that are primarily white. And maybe we're just not getting the candidates because of, like Daniel said, people see that it's like there's only 4% of head athletic directors that are people of color. So they look at that. They're like, if I don't have super awesome credentials, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get it. So I'm just not going to apply. And that is the issue. And that is, as white people, our fault. Right. That's white people problems. Yeah. I think, so I mean, how I've, do we fix that? Like, I, I think Daniel's doing the work, right? Mm-hmm. Making it accessible to have more diverse um, workplaces and um, having industries viewed as diverse and that people feel okay, people of color feel okay and confident applying to those jobs. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that just what you said made me think of our conversation with JP Abercrombie when she was saying that I, when I was a student athlete, I didn't see anybody who looked like me in leadership roles or in administration roles in our athletic department. So I didn't even know that was a thing that I could go and pursue a job like I have now until much later in, in, you know, her, her student athlete journey or her life. I can't remember exactly when she started to think that way, but but to your point, you know, what do we do to fix it? Yes, Daniel has created this awesome database that athletic departments can take advantage of. But 
will they? Right. And, and what do we have to do to ensure that they not only know about it, but why are you making the faces you're making? Can you not hear my computer's dinging because I'm getting texts? Oh, no. Oh, great. Okay. Ignore my face facial expressions. <laughs> Continue on with this wonderful thought. I literally was like, what am I, what am I saying <laughs> that she's reacting this way to? I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's right. Please this in. It's very authentic. Um, your faces have thrown me a little bit off <laughs> my so thought sorry. process. I think I was saying something about how do we, like, yes, Daniel is doing the work and Daniel has put together this wonderful database, but who else is doing the work and who else is, you know, in administrative circles saying once, once, you know, athletic organizations are getting to that point where I'm going to say to the Wells Fargo point where it's like, well, you know, we tried, we posted it several times. We left it open for weeks and, and, you know, we just didn't get anybody when that is happening. You have to ask yourself as an athletic department, a, why is no one applying? What it, what about your athletic department says that, you know, a minority candidate, a diverse candidate, person of color is not going to be comfortable even applying to a job in your athletic department? What is that about? So I think it's a, for, for people who are serving in senior level roles within athletic organizations specifically, and really this can be applied broadly, I think, to any, you know, any space in corporate America you have to ask the question why, which again, Wells Fargo clearly did not. They just, that was the end all like, oh, well, we can't hire them if they're not applying, you know? Okay. Well, why are they not applying and where are you not? What, what, you know, communities and what spaces is your job posting not circulating in that it should be so that you can get candidates who are, you know, going to come in and provide different backgrounds and perspectives and, and ultimately make your company a better space. I was listening, re-listening to our conversation with, um, coach Mike Avery the other day. Uh, and he was talking about the, you know, the most diverse team that he ever coached, which had people, I think he said there were 17 countries in the locker room at one time. And he was saying the world will tell you that that diversity does not work that it, you know, it can't work with so many people from all these different spaces. He's like, but for us, we, we didn't focus on how, you know, diverse we were, we were celebrating each other and the backgrounds we came from and all this different kind of stuff. And, and ultimately it became kind of like a secret weapon. Like it became their ultimate strength because of how diverse they were. And I think if more leaders embraced that mentality, we, we live in a better world. We have, we have better, you know, work environments, work-life balance, all those things. Beautifully said, Taylor. <laughs> Beautifully said. I don't know how to follow that up. You know what? I concur. <clears throat> That's a great way to follow it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way. Um, I'm going to, I want to shift us to, yeah, we kind of, we must have viewed each other's notes uh, beforehand, which we actually didn't, but we had so many of the same things, which we've covered up to this point. But um, the last bits that I had in my notes was how much we had in common, because as I was listening to everything that he's saying, I was like, oh, yeah, I switched from being a business major to a, well, not communications, but to being an advertising major. And, oh, yeah, I really loved my college experience. And he almost went to Illinois. You know, he said he had Big Ten connections and, you know, ended up going to 
to an HBCU, but he just loved it, immediately fell in love with campus and the vibe that was there, which is, as you know, exactly how I feel about Champaign and, and Illinois. He ran the four by two. I mean, it was like every single thing that he talked about. I'm like, I had that experience. Hey, I have a similar experience. Every single thing. Not every single thing, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but even our, like, he just got... Overlap. He just got a lot of overlap. Yeah. He, he just got his master's degree in curriculum and instruction. That is what my PhD that I'm currently working on. That's the, the official title of it as well. Wow. You're just two P's. I'm catching up on a lot of sarcasm, Melissa, because obviously not every experience he shared was the same. As no, no, no. The two P's comment was sincere. Right. I was cracking up when I can't even remember which at which point it was when I was like, okay, I have to tell you, like, I have to go back to this. I can't think of what it was, but he was like, did we just become best friends? <laughs> I'm like, I think we might have. <laughs> right? I think we might have. <clears throat> hey, becoming best friends with the guests is my thing. You Well, you want to be their best friends, That's but I'm not. <laughs> Although uh, I should tell you, um, Guess who I saw this weekend? I don't know. It's very vague, and I didn't give you a lot of clues. So let me just <laughs> tell you. It, well, actually, here's a clue. It's at Jen Jalafo's wedding. <gasps> the millennial millionaire, Blake Conradi. You are correct, my dear. Okay. How is he doing? He seems very well. Him and his wife were there. Um, they have baby Bo at home, who I think they said was nine months old at this point. Wow. Um, and we were just chit-chatting about the podcast and I was like oh, telling other people, I was like, oh, we were on a podcast together. And he's like, you know, we were on the same podcast, but we weren't on it together. I never actually got to talk to you. And this is why I have trouble actually befriending <laughs> our guests. This is true. This is true. I would love to have you on the actual interview. So if that's something you're interested in pursuing in the coming episodes, I mean, obviously the next few are already recorded, but after that, (laughs) (laughs) but also one of the reasons that we don't do that, I think is because of our crazy schedules. Yeah. It's hard enough for us to connect weekly. Right. So quit, quit your job and move to Florida and we'll just, we'll just have all the time to do this. Well, that does sound swell. <laughs> swell. I'm going to make Bear like me more than you. Oh. <laughs> never I'm mind. Or am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, never mind. Don't come. <laughs> oh, well, not more than you, but I am going to feed him a lot of treats and get him to at least 80 pounds pretty quickly. I think that he is looking at a cool hundo for his, hey. <laughs> for his overall. I mean, he's seven months and he's already 70 pounds. People I've talked to, we we took him to the park the other day, ran into a lady with a full-grown golden who Bear was bigger than. She's like, oh yeah, he's four years old and he's only 60 pounds. <laughs> we were like, okay. <laughs> we are going to be spending so much on food. <laughs> Your dog is aptly named. Right. Well, that's why we named him Bear because of his paws. They were so big. So we we knew that he would be large, but... That um, that run-in at the park was a telling. 
conversation. Yeah. She did say that she thought um, she picked the runt of the litter, but all the same, it's quite the difference. Yeah. Well, bad. Anyway, that uh, that's all I had, buddy. Hey, I have one thing. Okay. Can you stop bringing up the slap chop? Because it hurts my feelings every time when no one likes it. <laughs> you know what? I was thinking about that the other day. And like I said, the next interview is already pre-recorded, but I am just going to be firm in the quick peel after that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I won't, I was realizing as I was listening back to, for, for the 30 for 30 that, that I've been doing, as I was listening back to some of them, I was like, hmm, this is like the eighth time that I've said, <laughs> that, I've said that Melissa wants to call it this, but, but I'm not going to call it that. <laughs> so yeah, and then people are like, yeah, no, we hate that. <laughs> It's fine, guys. I mentioned it one time. We can let it go. Uh, yeah, that's my bad. That's my bad. Uh, I will. I will cease on the, on the slap chop comments. <laughs> I guess I was subconsciously building a case against you. I haven't brought it up. <laughs> right, you haven't. Not again since you can the first. Have a quick deal. That's fine. I think there were maybe one or two guests where we talked about it on, and then you, you really haven't brought it up again, (laughs) probably over a year, honestly. (laughs) Ah, good times. You win. I concede. (laughs) I will take, um, embarrassingly, I will accept this victory. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Shall we, uh, shall we wrap it up here, buddy? I would love nothing. Well, no, that's not true. I don't want to leave you, but I will say goodbye. Okay. Fair. No? Okay. Yep. Uh, (laughs) Why is this always so awkward for me? I literally don't know. (laughs) Can't do it successfully. Okay. Here we go. And a three and two and one. (laughs) And that's the way the onion peels. We'll see you next time. We are so excited for next week's episode. A uh, brand new space for the Bloom Pod, really. Um, I don't know that I want to drop any more hints than that, but but a brand new space, um, a brand new everyday person who's chasing a big dream and something that is very timely to the athletic world right now. So super pumped. We'll see you next week. Please tune in and, and listen to all the gems dropped by next week's guest. <laughs>